You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Okay, number 34 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's been a while since I've been here. I love being here. This is, this is awesome. I missed, missed Sunday school. So 34, adoption. The question, does anybody need a, a catechism? They might be around here somewhere. If anybody needs one, oh, they're over here? Oh, here they are. If you need one, just raise your hand, uh, and Ron can get you one. So the question is, what is adoption? And the answer given is adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Now, of course, uh, Pastor Pilon did question 33 and 36, I think, and it was right to do that because justification and sanctification go together. This one comes in between. So it's, it's, it's closely related But the word is taken from civil law, common in the Roman world, as you probably know. Childless people in the Roman world wanted to keep the inheritance within the family. The only way to do that is if they had children. So to prevent their inheritance from descending to strangers, they legally transferred the right of inheritance to a child that they adopted. And the parents would exercise their right to choose the person who was agreeable to them and beloved by them. Now, that's important because human adoption a lot of times depends upon, not always, but attractiveness, whereas in our adoption into the family of heaven, (laughs) we're loathsome in God's sight and he adopts us anyway. The person, if of age and ability to give his consent, agreed to this mutually beneficial relationship. So both of them would benefit. It wasn't just one way. The father would take care of and provide for the person adopted as if that person was his own by nature. He became one of the family. And the person adopted would take upon himself or herself the family name. And we'll look at that more uh, a little bit later. And pay respect or honor the parents. And that word honor does include the idea of taking care of them in their old age. You provide for their needs. Honor your parents. Honor your father and mother. You care for them. Our culture has gotten away from that. But that's what the word honor means primarily. You know, elders are worthy of double honor. You pay them. So I think your way, Journey, is pretty good as an elder, isn't it? (laughs) The honor, I'm just kidding. People were adopted for reasons of expediency. The inheritance, as we've said, affection. Compassion or duty. And we see examples of this in Scripture. Pharaoh's daughter adopted. or duty. We see examples of this in Scripture. Pharaoh's daughter adopted Moses out of pity. He was in the bulrushes. 
and affection because we're told in Acts 7 that he was beautiful. There was something about baby Moses that was attractive. Eli adopted Samuel, Mordecai adopted Esther, and Joseph adopted Jesus. Eli adopted Samuel because Samuel was to be a priest and a prophet raised in the temple. Mordecai adopted Esther because she was his cousin. Her parents had died and he took care of her. And of course, Joseph, out of duty and compassion, adopted baby Jesus and the revelation given to him from heaven. Any questions so far? This is kind of just a preliminary. So what this does helps us to better understand our adoption into the family of God. It's a divine act. It's something God does to his people. And it establishes what we call a filial relationship with justified believers. A filial relationship is father, son, mother, son, and daughter. It's within the family. That's when we see a filial relationship. It's talking about parent-child. And God cannot and he will not admit into his family an unjustified sinner. So that's one of the reasons why we have justification first in the catechism and then adoption. Um, Adoption follows logically. There's no temporal difference. It's instantaneous. But it does follow logically from the bedrock truth of justification. So when you're justified, you're adopted. Unjustified sinners cannot be adopted. And according to law, the law of heaven, the Christian becomes a permanent child of God, cannot be taken away. In Roman society, you could be disowned. Actually, a natural child could be disowned. Technically, an adopted child could not be disowned in Roman society. That was a big difference. You'd think it'd be the other way around, but it's not. A natural child could be disowned. Not an adopted child. Adoption resembles justification in that both of these benefits are judicial acts. It's something that's taking place in the court. It's a legal transaction. And it's out of God's free grace. It's not earned. It's not bought. It's not borrowed. Both of them are described as acts because they both take place instantaneously. Again, like I said, there's no difference in time But logically, you can see the difference because justification is the bedrock for the adoption. Justification is a change of legal status. You are right in the eyes of God. You can stand before his august throne without fear. Whereas adoption is a change in personal status. The former declares you and I to be righteous. We can stand before God. The latter, adoption, constitutes us as God's children. We stand in a whole new relationship with our Creator. Justification establishes us as citizens of God's kingdom. Adoption makes us members of His family. They're related, but there is a slight difference. In justification, God acquits us as the judge, whereas in adoption, He embraces us as a father. And you know that picture in the parable that Jesus tells of the prodigal son, you know, and the son comes to his senses and he's feeding the pigs and he decides to go back home and become one of the servants. And when he comes within sight, the father sees him and just runs down the lane and embraces him. 
And that's kind of the idea when, <clears throat> when God adopts us. He embraces us as his own. Never again to be outside of the family or to be a stranger. Justification and adoption may be distinguished, but as we said, they're never separated. He who is justified is adopted into God's family, and he who is adopted by God has been justified. So, any questions on any of that? It's a wonderful benefit in the Christian life. Oh, John. Right. And that seems to be one of the most durable ways to communicate the permanent justification. Yeah. No, that's a great way to put it, John. <clears throat> and you and like a father, a good a good concerned father, you will chastise them or train them or admonish them, which is what God does, but he'll never let us go. That's tremendous. So those who are justified become secure members. Thank you for that segue of God's family, secure. The legal relationship is changed. We're transferred from the family of the devil into the family of Christ. It's a huge change, a radical change in relationship. And there are some who would teach us the universal fatherhood of God. All men, all women are children of God, which can't be true. If everybody was already a child, then adoption doesn't make any sense. Where adoption assumes that you're outside the family coming in, and it doesn't make any sense. So adoption establishes this permanent relationship so that the Christian is God's child forever. If we fall into sin, as John indicated, and we grieve the Holy Spirit, which we can do, we can lose our filial sense and our assurance of salvation, but we'll never lose our salvation. I'm sure you've experienced that. You've struggled with sin like I have, and you've blown it, and you lose the sense. You don't have the same level or degree of assurance, but you'll never lose your salvation. We can temporarily forfeit our consciousness of being numbered among God's children. That's true. But adoption cannot be lost, even though our enjoyment of this status and privilege can be forfeited. So David, you know, there's during those months, or maybe even a year, when he was living in sin, he had sinned with Bathsheba, he had had Uriah murdered, he was lying about it. Uh, his bones were aching. He was struggling with conviction. He had no consciousness of his salvation. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, he said. I have no joy. But he was saved. That cannot be lost. Thank God. Baptism solemnly admits a person into the visible family of God, and it signifies, in part, his or her adoption. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Now, that's not trying to be sexist. What that means is that every Christian, male or female, has the inheritance. You know, in the Old Testament, in a Jewish mindset, the son had the inheritance. So all of us are sons of God. Gender doesn't make any difference. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So this idea that baptism signifies, in part, our adoption. He who is baptized is a member of the household of faith. 
When we see somebody brought into the family, the visible family of God, that is a visible representation of this marvelous invisible relationship that takes place. We're brought into the true family of God by faith in Christ. And we're presumably, when you're baptized, presumably numbered among God's heirs. We treat you as if you are an heir of God. Until such time as you prove otherwise, you're a member of the family. And God loves his children's children. That's why he puts that mark upon them. These are the most precious things to us, right? So, any questions, Mark? Right. Right. We're in the presence of our Father. This is a gathering of His people. So we pray we, always first person plural. It should never be first person singular. And I know that's kind of odd in our culture, but we should never pu pray publicly in the first person singular. I, me. It's we, us, especially in the sanctuary. That is the family of God gathering. Now, there may be some outside the family who are there. That's okay. They can listen to us talk to our Father. But that's for the family. And when we gather around that table, that's the family meal. And all God's children are present, Lord willing. John? Yeah. Yeah, we're all creatures in the sense that he's quoting their own poets to try to get an inroad into their thinking. God is closer to you than you even know, and you call him the unknown God. I'm preaching him to you. This is the God who created you. But he's not there affirming the universal fatherhood of God. Um, Adam, by his sin, forfeited that right the day he acquiesced to the devil's temptation. So, again, there's no sense in which we can say we're children if John would say we're born of God, which is not true of everybody. That's how you can be a child of God, John 1, 12, and 13. And we're adopted, which assumes you're outside the family coming in. It makes no sense, adopt, if we're all children of God, it makes no sense to say we're adopted if we're already in the family, right? Right. Very good point. That's right. So we have, by nature, we're, we're brought into this world under the dominion of Satan in his family. We are of our father, the devil. And there's no way we can escape apart from the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only reason you're here today. That's the only reason that I'm here today. So Christians are adopted by God in and for the sake of his only son. Everything he does for us is in and for the sake of Christ. Jesus has all things pertaining to our salvation placed into his hand. The covenant of grace is made with Christ as the second Adam, and in him with all the elect as his seed. So anything we have as Christians comes through Christ. It's always through Christ, which is why every prayer needs to be in the name of Jesus. Don't ever say... And if you've said this, it's okay. I'm not pointing the finger. Don't ever say your name. It's Jesus' name. 
It's not God the Father's name. It's not the Holy Spirit's name. It's Jesus' name. That's important. We, we draw our encouragement to pray and our hope of acceptance in prayer from Christ and his mediation. So it's on the basis of his mediatorial sonship that we're adopted. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that Psalm 2 verse 7 is quoted several times in the New Testament. It refers to when God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the idea of begotten because he's exalted as the mediator. He obtained all things when he was appointed the heir of all things, Hebrews 1-2. He accomplished the work of redemption and he secured for you and I the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, all of them. So Paul declares that God the Father has blessed us in Christ with these blessings. If you're joined to Christ, all of these blessings are yours. And as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you wake up every morning and you say to yourself, I'm a child of God. And this day has been given to me as one of his children. And you remind yourself. We need to be reminded. Uh, remember, um, I think it was Hebrews 12 when he says to these Hebrews who are struggling with being persecuted, have you forgotten what God has said to you, that he disciplines the one he loves? They forgot it. They need to be reminded day in and day out. The Christian's adoption rests upon and is the fruit of redemptive work of Christ. God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive the adoption as sons. That's the goal. He wants us into his family. The privileges and the benefits we enjoy are first given to Christ, who then confers them upon us. Look at the Spirit. He obtained the promise of the covenant, the Holy Spirit, and then he pours that out upon the church. It's through Christ. I assign to you, he says, as my Father assigned to me a kingdom. God gave the kingdom to Christ. Christ gives it to his people freely, without strings. There's nothing you did, nothing I did to earn this. <laughs> it's truly a free gift. Any questions on that page? Rob? The same. He doesn't love us any less, which, how can we wrap our brains around that? This is his eternal son with whom he has spent eternity in blessed fellowship. How can he love us as much as he loves Christ? But he does. We're fellow heirs with Christ. We share his glory. He loves us in Christ so that when he sees Rob Whitaker, he sees Christ and he loves you as he loves his son. That's incredible. It, I know. That's why we have to remind ourselves and wake up, hey, this is true. Yeah. Since Jesus is appointed the heir of all things, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We're no longer accounted and treated only as subjects, which God has every right to do, but we are sons. Privileges and responsibilities, both of them great. 
As evidence and guarantee, we receive the spirit of adoption. And we're able to approach God and to address him as Jesus himself did, Abba, Father. It's a, an address of intimacy and security and confidence. That's the, the address that Jesus used, and if Jesus used it, then we can too. It's a filial cry. Remember filial, the parent-child relationship. The filial cry, which was on the lips of Jesus himself, is sound and solid proof of our adoption. And as we grow in Christ, as we mature in the faith, this sense of adoption, this sense of God as our Father deepens. And perhaps some of you seasoned Christians can affirm that, that over time, the sense of his fatherly care has become deeper and more intimate. And when you pray and you say, Father in heaven, uh, there is a deeper sense of the truth of that, which is how God intends it. It is the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit who enables us to rely upon his fatherly goodness. He is good and he does good. Regardless of what providence may seem to suggest, providence is confusing. His ways are infinitely above our ways, but the word says that he's good. And that's how we build our faith. No longer do we shrink in fear from the judge, but we draw near with confidence to our Father. And redemption has made us forgiven servants of God, and adoption has made us legal children of God. And we have adoptions in our church, which are beautiful illustrations of this truth. Because the Christian is God's adopted child, we become heirs of God through Christ. Prisoners are translated into children. Slaves of sin are translated into joint heirs with Christ. Talk about rags to riches. Wow. Christ has everything. Eternal glory. Infinite blessedness. We're entitled to the heavenly inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, according to Peter. So regardless of what you have or don't have in this life, who cares? As we've said, and I think I'll say today, it's sort of like moving chairs around on the Titanic. Who cares if you're up front or in the back? The whole thing is sinking. But we have an inheritance that is unfading. Nobody can take it away. Therefore, you can be bold. Live your life for the glory of Christ. And that's the promise of a God who cannot lie. It's a promise which has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the inheritance is forever fresh. It's not going to be monotonous. You'll never get tired of it. It's forever fresh, secure. It's kept in heaven for you, out of the reach of all enemies. I don't think he'll mind me saying this, but Elder Van Junen said when he was younger, he used to think, I don't want to go to heaven because all I do is sit on a cloud and play a harp, <laughs> right? But it's not like that. It's fresh, always fresh, always invigorating, never boring. God's infinite. We'll spend eternity exploring the depths and the riches of God and his grace. So some of the privileges... They're reserved for those adopted into God's family. This is one of the reasons why we have the supper and we say, if you're not a Christian, basically, not baptized, no profession, not a member of a church, if you're not, we don't want you to think that you are and be deceived. 
So we, I stand up there and I say, look, this is what it means to partake of this family meal. You've got to be in the family. If you're not in the family, let's figure this out and get you in the family. Whatever it is that keeps you from coming here, let's figure it out. But please don't walk away from this place thinking you're in the family when you're not. That's a mercy. Really, it is. It's a merciful thing when God tells you, look, you're not right. You need to get right. So, the privileges are reserved for the adopted children of God. And perhaps the verse that sums it up best is Revelation 21.7, the King James. I won't say the King Jimmy. Um, he who overcomes will inherit all things. That is a privilege. Everything. There is nothing withheld from you. That verse in Psalm 84, he withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. He means it. Everything is yours. And we'll all share it. And there'll be no covetousness, no jealousy, no envy, no turf wars. We inherit all things. It's a vast inheritance, the possession of which we'll enjoy forever. And we have the right to all the blessings which God has ordained for us as children to possess. Jim? Join the club. There you go. That's encouraging. Right. Right. Well, if you being evil can give good gifts, what about your father in heaven? So you're an evil father. Let's face it, you're a wretch. But you've taken care of your children, right? And you love your children. And just because they sin doesn't mean you get them out of the family. You love them. Well, if you being evil love your children, look at God. And out of his vast love and mercy and grace, he showers upon you this, not because you deserve it, but simply because he likes to give it. And his son is worthy of it, you know. He gives it to Christ, and he's worthy, and Christ is pleased to give it to you. As my Father appointed a kingdom to me, I appoint it to you. It, 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 it's almost too hard to believe. That's why it's so hard. That's why every seventh day and all the days in between, we're reminded. We forget. We allow providence to press in, and our faith grows weak, and it's a flicker. And then God's word comes along and strengthens that faith again. We need it. Jim? Yeah. And the, you know, the, the consequential thought from there is we're not thinking of ourselves more, but Christ more. Right. That's, that's the classic, you must be free, you must be Very good. That's right. Amen. And the, the older we get, hopefully, the more we focus upon Christ. You're right. Yeah. Because we do realize the chief of sinners, right? I mean, I called Jim a wretch because I'm one. It takes one to know one, right? 
God is not ashamed to be called our God, and in him we're entitled to the possession of all things. Adoption is such an incredible thing. We can be sure that everything he has in store for his believers, his children, will fill us with joy and satisfaction. In the parable, Jesus, we get the idea of what it meant to be entitled to the family inheritance. The father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Now, of course, you're thinking to yourself, well, he's talking to the elder brother there. Yes, the elder brother failed to appreciate the great privileges that he enjoyed at home with his father, but he had them as a son. And that statement sums it up. All that is mine is yours. You and I cannot possibly conceive of a more glorious revelation of God's heart than what is said in that verse. He's given his son. And give his life, spirit, his glory. So he, um, <clears throat> he bestows all the riches of his son, uh, the king, upon every one of his adopted children. Any questions? Yes, sir. Some interpretations of the, the prodigal son as the, the elder son was left outside the party. He was. He wouldn't go in. He was invited. He, would, he wouldn't go in. And so they were giving indications like, was the elder son saved or not? You're saying that based upon his father's statement. No, I didn't say he's saved. I said he was a child of the father. I don't know what happened to him, and I don't think the parable is meant to tell us what happened to him. But the point being is that the father identifies the privilege of a son. So whether or not he ended up apostatizing, we don't know. But, but, but his point was, look, you're my son. You have everything that is mine. You've always had that. And that tells us a little bit of what it means to be the son of our heavenly father. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, Mark, I'm sorry. Pharisees. Yeah. Right. But they didn't understand it, appreciate it, or engage properly in it. That's the problem. But again, I don't, I don't think the parable, you can't take a parable and have every aspect one-to-one -one correspondence, right? So the parable is not meant to teach us whether or not the elder brother is saved. It's meant to show us, one, the privilege of the adopted or the returning son to the heart or lack thereof of the unbeliever. Yeah. John? I think that would be similar to Jonah. At the end, he's staring out into wanting the fire to come down. His purpose is to make it. See, I'm the, I'm the Jonah. I'm the elder brother. I need to change. I think that's what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, Jonah is a... Is a a different example, you're right, but he did, uh, he was upset because these enemies of Israel were getting the mercy of God. It's like us saying, um, well, Osama bin Laden, we kind of want him out. And God says, no, I'm, I'm going to bless him. What? Are you kidding me? You know, that kind of thing. 
And uh, the idea that the Jewish people always looked at the Gentiles as mere dogs. They don't deserve anything. And God says, no, that's not true. I'm the God of all who believe in me. So we have the freedom of sonship. We're freed from the slavery and numbered among God's children. These are some of the privileges. We're no longer under the dominion and servitude of sin and Satan. We become servants of righteousness. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That is a privilege of sonship. Formerly of our father the devil, we were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions. That described us outside of the family. We walked in trespasses and sins. We followed Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Why are we surprised when we see the world acting like sinners? <laughs> Don't be surprised. We do that sometimes. Why would we expect anything different? You can be disgusted. You can be saddened. Don't be surprised. It's the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And as a result, we had lived in bondage to sin and the devil and under a fearful expectation of judgment. We were enslaved by the fear of death. If you're an unbeliever, death is a very terrifying thing, as it should be. Because once you die in your sins, that's it. Your doom is sealed. But if you're a believer... Death need not frighten you because the sting has been taken out of it. It's simply now a portal to blessedness. Deliverance of these evils is a tremendous privilege granted to all the children of God. Titus says, or Paul says to Titus, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified, here you have those two doctrines, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You're justified, you're adopted. You're an heir. You're entitled, you're entitled to everything. Not just... Lord, I hope I get it. No, you have every right to it. You have the right and the title to eternal life. You can go in prayer and plead God's promise and say, Lord, you promised it. And it's mine. And I'm going to live like a child of God. And he loves when you do that. Because what you're doing is you're praying in confidence on his promise. It's not because you're presumptuous. He promised it. There's a story, I forget who was, which, which general... If it was Alexander the Great or Xerxes coming across to the Greeks or something, but um, when he, the general stopped in his army and one of the army uh, rebels, I'm going to say, now I'm probably getting the details of the story wrong, but the point of the story is this, the rebel came up and the king said, what should I do for you? <laughs> the rebel said something like, I want you to give me $10 million dollars and a wonderful mansion over in Greece. And all of the attendants said, General, lop off his head. Well, who is he to ask something like that? And the general said, are you kidding me? I'm going to give it to him because he has confidence in my generosity. He thinks I'm so generous that he's willing to ask something so vast as that. 
And that's the point. God is so generous. When we go to him in prayer, we go to a king who is full of generosity. There's a song we sing, you know, you're not coming to a base king, you're coming to a generous king, to a father. We bear his name. The believer has the name of God put upon him. Fear not, for I am with you, everyone who is called by my name. We're distinguished from the rest of the world. That's a blessing. There's something special about you, not because it's inherent, but because it's given. You are special, just like adopted children are special. They're chosen. To bear the name of God is one of the greatest privileges known. In Scripture, great stress is laid upon names which have bearing upon a person's place and character. So calling us by the name implies intimate knowledge, just like Adam named Eve, intimate. Christ called and named his disciples no longer Simeon Peter. He gave names. There is this idea of intimate knowledge. It designates us as belonging to God, as members of his family, under his protection and care. He's not careless. He's not indifferent to his own children because no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. So we bear the family name in the world and God keeps us under his fatherly care and dispensations. And what's interesting is that whenever a kindness or a cruelty is done to a child of God, he considers it as done to himself. The king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And he says to those on his left, insofar as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. We bear the name of God, which is one of the reasons why we're baptized in the triune name. We receive his spirit. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So we're consecrated and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. A seal cannot be broken. It's permanent. They whom God adopts, he anoints, and those whom he makes sons, he makes saints. We can adopt other humans, we can put our names on them, but we can't give them new hearts. Those whom God adopts, he not only justifies, but he sanctifies, renewing their nature. He renews the heart, he turns the wolf into a lamb, and he recreates in that person the family likeness. We begin to show the lineaments of Christ's visage, his countenance. We look like Jesus more and more. The spirit of adoption brings freedom, produces gratitude, and a filial sense of love and affection. And perhaps nowhere is this more evident than in prayer. That's why prayer is, if you're not praying, you're not a Christian. Or at least not a believer. You may be called a Christian, but you're not a believer. If you're not praying, prayer is the lifeline of Christianity. It's this idea that we want to have fellowship with our Father. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. 
And he does that through the word, as well as by the graces that he puts into our souls. He testifies to our spirits that we're children. Any questions before I go to the next one? I probably should have asked last time. Are we okay? Okay. Well, finally, heirs. If children, then you're an heir. You're an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The child is willing to follow the elder brother. We're willing to identify ourselves with this small persecuted flock. We're willing to give up anything. Your steadfast love is better than life. That's the cry of the child. It's the cry of the martyr. No one who is adopted by God is left out of the family inheritance. Regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done, makes no difference. If you're an heir, it all belongs to you. You cannot forfeit it. Again, you can forfeit your consciousness of it. You may not have the same level of assurance, but you can't forfeit your inheritance. The joy and pleasure of an heir is the worth and the value of that to which he's entitled. We're heirs of God. He is our portion. He's your God. He belongs to you. You belong to him. It's a beautiful inheritance, Psalm 16, 6. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. If we understand what our inheritance is, God is your inheritance. You're going to enjoy God. Forever. What's the first question of the catechism? Our duty is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, as a possessive. He's yours. Under the Old Testament, the priests didn't have parcels of land because the Lord was their inheritance, and they were designed to represent for us this idea that God is our portion. We're fellow heirs with Christ, who's the heir of all things, and because of our union with him, we can confidently expect to inherit everything, as we've said. It just demonstrates the greatness of our inheritance. If that inheritance is worthy of Jesus himself, the eternal incarnate Son, well, then it's worthy of us. He loves the inheritance. and He knows exactly what it is. It's infinite. And if he does, boy, it's going to be fantastic. We will share in his unprecedented glory, eternal life, and blessedness. Any questions? Oh, go ahead. Any questions? That's the last. Rob? There will be gradations in heaven as there will be gradations in hell. But no heir is loved more than another. So the gradations are simply out of grace that God rewards the things that he enables us to do. But because you're way up front and I'm near the back, it's not going to make any difference to me. I'll rejoice because there's no jealousy, there's no envy. The fact that we're there... But again, I have to be honest with you, there will be gradations. There will be different levels of reward, just as there are different levels of punishment. And we can't sugarcoat that. You know, he'll remember every cup of cold water that's given. 
And you see um, in some of the parables, he was given 10 talents, he was given five, he was given one or two. The 10 and the five, it made no difference how many talents they were given, but what they did with it, and God rewarded them accordingly. So, but yeah, it's, there will be gradations. <laughs> I don't think you're going to be in the back row. Getting to know you, I think, yeah. I'll probably look at the back of your head, but that's okay. Anybody else? Yes. No, assurance of salvation is based upon a threefold basis. It's the promise, faith in God's promise, that's one. The evidence of grace in your life, you see yourself growing more Christ-like, that assures you. And the testimony of the Holy Spirit with your spirit. So those three things. If the graces in your life are obscured by your sin, that's going to obscure your view of yourself as a child of God. You're not going to become a non-child, but you won't see it until you repent and God brings you back to the point where you're trusting in him like David. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. In other words, I lack assurance I sinned with Bathsheba. I killed her husband. I've been lying about it all this time. My bones are under your weight. I'm burdened. There's no evidence to me right now that I'm a child of God. He was, but there wasn't the evidence, right? So we, we look at the evidence in our lives. That's one of the ways that we grow in assurance, seeing the evidence of grace. And repentance is part of that. You sin. You repent truly, and that joy is restored. So it's not something out there. It's in here. Assurance. And it's not always there. True believers may have it weakened, may have it interrupted, may wait a long time for assurance. There are some weak and doubting Christians that wait a long time to be assured. The guy who wrote, Come Thou Found, struggled his whole adult life with deep depression, William Cowper, or Cooper. And he had to be reminded again and again by John Newton, I think was his friend, that he was a child of God. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, right? So his assurance was weak at best. We can talk more about it. Let me close us in prayer because I think we're getting ready. Father, we thank you for this time. And oh, we thank you for the adoption as your children. Thank you that we can never lose it, that it's in Christ. And we thank you for the privilege we now have to draw near to you in worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.